Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. When people use the word truth, they usually mean a worldview framed by personal experience or established by philosophy. For these ideological systems, whether personal or corporate, truth is understood as someone's abstract statement about the world. In sharp contrast, biblical truth, like scientific truth, deals with observable phenomena in the world. Where modern science discerns the mechanics of creation, the Bible catalogs types of human behavior and their predictable outcomes, or fruit. In the case of Mark, the feeding of the multitudes presents one such truth. Though counterintuitive, generosity in poverty, hospitality towards strangers, and openness to neighbors are all necessary for human survival. This is not an abstract opinion or a philosophical worldview, nor is it, quote, a perspective. It is an observable and repeatable fact. It was a fact before we were born and will remain a fact after we are gone. It is the bread of the Lord's instruction, the bread of life for the salvation of the human race. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verses 1 to 10. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 169 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Before we get started with today's episode, we'd like to remind all of our listeners of another great podcast that deals with the Bible as literature and makes an effort to understand the Bible as it was intended to be heard in its historical context by its original authors, and that, of course, is the Naked Bible Podcast. The Naked Bible Podcast gets its name from its core goal, to help listeners read the biblical text in light of its own ancient context, not creeds or confessions or denominational distinctives. The Naked Bible Podcast tries to get listeners to consider how the original writers wanted to be understood and how they presumed their original audience would have read what they produced. Toward that end, the podcast frequently introduces listeners to texts and artifacts that can help us understand understand the worldview of the ancient Near East and the Second Temple period. So Dr. Michael Heiser, as I said, is committed to the critical study of Scripture and to doing the work of sharing the content of Scripture as honestly as possible with as wide an audience as possible. So I want to encourage our listeners to give him a listen. You will not be disappointed. It's always rewarding and edifying to engage in the study of scripture with as many learned people as possible. So thanks to Dr. Michael Heiser 
for his efforts in biblical scholarship. Dr. Heiser does a great job of bringing a lot of scholarly research and insights to a podcast and presenting them in a really accessible way for anyone. You know, you don't need a PhD to listen to him, but you get the benefits of his PhD when you do listen to him. Fantastic. So moving along in our own Bible study, Richard, to chapter 8 of the Gospel of Mark, we have yet another example, a second example of Mark, dealing with this question of the meal, the Eucharistic meal, the meal around which the community is gathered, and of course a reminder, something that's been clearly established in this podcast, when we gather around the bread, it's the bread of instruction. The bread represents the teaching. It represents the Torah. It represents the gospel. And it is in contrast with stone in the Bible. You build temples of stone. You build cities with stone. But stone can't give life. You can't consume stone and live. You can eat bread and live. Because bread and water are essential for human existence and were essential in the story of Exodus. God provided bread in the wilderness. So again, we are dealing with this very important, very central metaphor that has come to characterize the Eucharistic meal in the Christian faith. And Mark does it in a surprising way because Mark is such a short book. I mean, we know that it's the shortest of all the Gospels. Yet he spends half a chapter twice to depict nearly the same event. And it's really strange if you think of Mark as a very compact book, why would he spend so much time talking about an event and then talk about it again, but changing some of the details within the story? Obviously what Mark is trying to do is he's trying to say, we have this event and we must understand the second event if we're gonna understand the general meaning, therefore, the specific teaching of Jesus and what Jesus is trying to bring. Now, we have to remember that Jesus is always about spreading the seed, spreading the seed, spreading the seed. I keep saying this to the extent of being boring and repetitious because Mark is. Mark really wants us to understand that this is what Jesus is about. It's not about Jesus, the guy. It's about Jesus, the teaching. The bread and the teaching are related. And if Jesus is so gung-ho about getting his teaching out, of course then feeding the people with this bread, both actual within the story, but metaphorical as we read the story, it makes perfect sense that Mark would want to spend a lot of energy talking about how Jesus is feeding not just one crowd of people, but two crowds of people. Or a crowd that is changing because of the content of the meal. Because in the original story, you had Jesus dealing with two communities, a Jewish community and a Gentile community. But this idea of two communities goes against the will of God. God doesn't look out upon the earth and say, oh, look at all these different nations and all these different peoples. They're all different types and kinds. Because remember, the different nations, the different peoples, the different languages, all were a consequence of man's belief in stone, of man's desire to build and to construct, of man's desire to assert his ego before God. Because while at Babel we see many peoples, God sees his children. 
In this sense, the biblical God is colorblind. He doesn't see identity. That's why we've emphasized again and again throughout Mark that any reading of Mark that thinks it's about identity and personality is betraying the content of Mark because identity undermines what God wills, which is that we are one family, one people around one table, which is the bread of truth. And this is not about imposing a particular religion. This is about extending hospitality in friendship and in fellowship to our neighbor, irrespective of their identity. So there's a progression here. Something is being accomplished by the teaching of Jesus. In those days, when there was again a large crowd and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. Like the previous story, we have this multitude who's been in the wilderness who's hungry. But interestingly, in chapter 6, Jesus had gone out after the death of John the Baptist to be by himself, and lo and behold, this multitude followed him. Here we have a group that's been following him nonstop, it seems like. It doesn't say that all of a sudden he was by himself and then there was a crowd. The crowd looks like it's been following him the whole time. And it says the multitude being very great, so we have such a big multitude that's following. Well, look, the thing is, he's still in the wilderness. And you have this classic symbol of the three days. Three days in the wilderness with Jesus. Three days in the tomb with Jesus, with nothing to eat. Three days. They are sojourning with Jesus for this complete period of time that is symbolic in Scripture. Jesus was in the tomb for three days, meaning he was really in the tomb. He really died. Lazarus was in the tomb for four days and there was a smell, meaning that we've gone beyond the certainty of three to the symbolic four in that particular example, which means that Lazarus was surely dead. So they are with Jesus in the wilderness. They are his students in the wilderness and of course, Jesus is going to test his disciples again because in worldly terms, they have nothing to eat and we'll see that Jesus has compassion on them. But the question always in Mark, is it really about bread for the stomach or is it about bread for the heart, the seed of reason? If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way and some of them have come from a great distance. So, Obviously, Jesus is showing mercy and compassion, which is the will of his Father, on the level of their material need. But it's interesting, this terminology, they will faint on the way, Richard. If I don't give them the bread of instruction, if I don't feed them the Pentateuch, if I don't explain to them the law of Moses to guide them on the way, they will fall off the path. It's symbolic language. So again, it's practical, they need food, but it's metaphoric. Without the bread, the manna from heaven, you will get lost in the wilderness. Right, it gives us some nice insight into what it means to walk in the way. If you aren't continually fed, you can't walk anymore. Like you said, Father, both on the material plane, but also on the metaphorical plane, this is significant. And they came from many different places. Just like you said in the beginning, you know, we have the desire to forge a single community, not a community of Jews 
and then also a community of Gentiles. But these are people who come from all over. And this is important. Now, I think it's also important that three days they've been with them, which means they're three days away from home, which means it's going to take three days for them to get back without food. They're done for. So the fact that they've walked three days with Jesus means that they have effectively left everything because there's no way they can get back without Jesus's help. They're all in at this point. And his disciples answered him, where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? So the disciples, once again, are falling in the trap of not understanding the abundance of the word, not understanding the generosity of that which the Lord has provided for them, and they are falling into this mentality of being stingy. Let's take care of our needs first. We don't have enough for everybody. How can we give out of scarcity? But it's an attitude problem. And if you've been to a poor country and been the guest at someone's home, they may not have enough for themselves, but you better believe when you sit at their table, there will be abundance. Because there's a deep-rooted understanding in these cultures that hospitality is the lifeblood of humanity, that it doesn't matter how hungry you are, when there is a guest, you have to provide out of abundance. And as affluent as we are in the United States, there's still a shadow of this tradition. When people host a party in a public place, they don't eat until the others have eaten. There are many people who still keep this important tradition. And it comes out of the tradition of nomadic communities who understood that generosity and the impulse to share more than you have is what safeguards life in the wilderness. It seems that the disciples are on the track of understanding that because at least they seem to have improved insofar as they don't tell Jesus to send them away. They simply answer from despair. So how are we going to feed them? How does one provide bread? Now, I think that the translation is unfortunate in that it says desolate place as opposed to wilderness or er eremia, which is what it is in Greek, because it clearly refers back to the Exodus. So we have this terrible irony here, which is the disciples still are clueless about the Exodus because, oh, how do you provide bread? bread for somebody in the wilderness. It's like, well, you don't have to read all of Exodus. If you just read the first half of the book of Exodus, you would know how you can satisfy people in the wilderness because God does it by sending manna. God takes care of the needs of his people when they're in the wilderness, when they're completely dependent on him. And these people all left everything so they could be with Jesus in spite of no way back. I mean, three days into the desert, it's three days out of the desert. And if you have nothing to eat already, you're dead meat. So these guys are really depending on Jesus. And they're depending on God. So people who depend on God for their life, I'm not going to say livelihood, their life, their life itself can be satisfied. Now, it's not that God doesn't let people die. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is God doesn't allow the destruction of his people because of their faithfulness. It's always because of their lack of faith. So the disciples are in much worse shape than the crowd. And ironically, they think the crowds are in worse shape. Jesus is going to demonstrate two things to his disciples. First, 
he's going to show them using this miracle of the loaves what the poor already understand that there is always enough if you are not selfish and if you submit to the divine impulse to share that's number one number two He's going to show them that if you understand what I'm saying, if you understand the meaning of the mana in the wilderness, then you know that what I'm really talking about is instruction, Torah, teaching. And there is always enough of the word to share. The word is a bottomless well. And it's linked because one's material generosity is a manifestation of one's submission to the teaching, to the bread, to the instruction that commands us to love God and to love our neighbor. And he was asking them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. Now, seven is an important number. We've talked about this many times, and you and I, Richard, don't always agree on the importance of numerology. But I think here we both concur that this is a significant number it's a symbolic number seven is the divine number it has to be significant because it is a different answer and it would be weird if it didn't matter before it was five and now it's seven i mean if nothing else we can say that there's even more than there was last time it's such a clear condemnation against the disciples because before they were taught that five loaves and two fish were enough to feed five thousand and now they've got even more loaves than that, why would the disciples be asking this question? I mean, that's what boggles my mind. How can the disciples be so ignorant? I mean, someone at church on Sunday said, where was Jesus's wisdom that he would pick guys like this to be his disciples? And my response was, he has to pick human beings. And this is how human beings are. Human beings don't get the message. They really don't trust that God is going to take care of things. They really don't trust that their destiny will turn out the way it needs to turn out. They don't trust that Jesus actually has a teaching that will give life. People don't actually believe these things. As much as they profess, as much as they go to church or whatever house of worship they go to, they don't actually believe it. That's why they think that they're the ones who need to pick up a gun or a sword and take matters into their own hands because they don't trust God. They don't think God can bring justice. They think that human beings need to bring justice on God's behalf, just like they don't trust that the reading of God's word, the Torah, is enough. They think they have to add all these things onto it and add visual aids like the new Museum of the Bible that's opening up in Washington, D.C. that has all kinds of displays about what it actually looked like in Eden. Really, do you need this or is it enough to read Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 to understand what Eden was like? Why do you need to go to a museum in Washington, D.C. when you can read the two chapters online for free? People don't actually trust the disciples, it's easy to dump on them for their ignorance and their stubbornness, but they're representative of actual humans like us. The seven also hints that because this is a divine table, it's divine and it's a full table. Six looks like seven in the Bible, but it's not seven. It's an incomplete number. That's why six is the symbol of Julius Caesar in the Bible. That's why 666 in Revelation means we have the uber Caesar, the definite Caesar. We have this worldly ego that opposes God, which people wrongly interpret as the devil, 
in a literal sense when in fact scripture is telling you Caesar is the devil. But here it's seven, which means it's full, it's complete, it's divine. And if it's full in terms of the will of God for his community, it means that everyone is gathered at this table, irrespective of their identity, their religious group, or their nation. And that's where we're headed in this pericope. And he directed the people to sit down on the ground, and taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and broke them, and started giving them to his disciples to serve them, and they served them to the people. So it's this fullness, this gathering that's inclusive, Richard. It pulls all the people together around God's teaching. And the difference between this and the previous version, he didn't set them down in companies like he did in groups of hundreds and groups of fifties, which echoes Exodus when he's organizing the people. Here, they just put them all out, told them to feed them, and they fed them. They also had a few small fish, and after he had blessed them, he ordered these to be served as well. And Father Paul Tarazi, in his commentary on the letters of Paul and Mark, his introduction to the New Testament, dealing with Paul's letters in conjunction with the Gospel of Mark. In that text, he points out that where in the previous pericope, there was specific mention of two fish representing two communities, Jews and Gentiles. Here it says a few small fish. So this is much more reminiscent of nomadic society where you're in the wilderness and you call a few flocks together. The shepherd gathers the sheep together. He calls them in the wilderness. It's not one or two with different identities. It's just the world. It's open. And this is truly Eucharistic because it's inclusive. And they ate and were satisfied, and they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over of the broken pieces. Why would Mark bother to mention how many baskets were left over? Before we were talking about the 12, that it makes sense that there's one for each tribe. Here we have seven for everyone to go out and be able to satisfy everyone with this bread. I mean, every time there's a little bit of bread, there's an unlimited amount that goes out afterwards. And this is what the disciples need to learn, that once you devour the teaching, there's more teaching left over, which is the opposite of what one expects when one thinks of earthly bread. That this kind of bread, the more you eat, the more there is to give. It's not just bread for the 12 tribes. Obviously, the Lord provides for the 12 tribes. That is his promise, despite their disobedience. It's bread for the whole world. It's life for the whole world. So the 12, in this sense, is fulfilled in the seven. Because now, Jew or Gentile, whatever you are, God is offering you sustenance in the wilderness. About 4,000 were there, and he sent them away. And here... Again, four is a very important number. Ultimately, there are four Gospels sent to the four corners of the earth. There are 4,000 present, symbolizing, again, this inclusiveness that the bread is being shared. The seed is being sown to the four corners of the world, Richard. As this is sown throughout the world, in both chapter 6 and here in chapter 8, there's one thing that's similar, which is he sent them away. So it wasn't that Jesus was again sending them away, that he wanted a crowd with them. No, in neither case did he want a crowd. But he was not going to send them away until he fed them. And he had to feed them so that they could then, in turn, feed others. So he was not against 
sending them away. He did not want a cult around him. He wanted people gone, but he was not going to send them away without food. And immediately he entered the boat with his disciples and came to the district of Dalmanutha. And again, referring to Father Paul Tarazi's commentary on Paul and Mark, he makes the point that this word, Dalmanutha, corresponds to Dalmatia, which is the coastal area of present-day Yugoslavia, which corresponds to Illyricum in Paul's letters. So in chapter 15 of Romans, the gospel travels as far as Illyricum. And that's why Father Paul's introduction to the New Testament, Paul and Mark, is such an important work. It shows how all of these texts are integrated on the symbolic level. There's a parallel here between the spread of the seed in Mark to the four corners of the earth and the spread of the gospel in Romans to the four corners of the earth. To the farest possible extent, the gospel is carried outward. Right. I know I'm harping on this point that Jesus wants the bread, wants the seed, wants the teaching to go out as far as he can, as much as it can. I don't think that I'm doing Mark an injustice by repeating that over and over because this is where we have evidence one more time in Mark that this is really what Jesus is about. Great episode, Dr. Benton. I wish you a very good Pascha, a blessed celebration of the resurrection. This year we celebrate on the same calendar as our brothers and sisters in the Western tradition, and that's always wonderful when we all celebrate Easter together. So have a great week, and I look forward to seeing you in the bright week after the feast. Yes, Take care. Much, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.